Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Well, let's get started. This is a short chapter, so we probably won't uh, be too long. Uh, I was thinking about going into chapter 11, but 11 has kind of got a lot of things that might take a little bit of time, and I didn't want to just blow over some of the things here because I think they're pretty important. Um, So let's pray, and then we'll get started in chapter 10. Father, thank you for tonight and for this time together. Thank you for the things that you are doing within our lives, Lord. And Father, some of those things we are aware of, and some of those things it's almost like we are along for the ride and aren't really sure how you are at work. We feel that we are being... Uh, carried by events under uh, the rule of circumstances, whether it be health issues, whether it be financial issues, whether it be family issues. Um, Things happen, Lord, that are beyond our control, but nothing is beyond your ability to work within us good. And so we do thank you for that. We do trust you for all that is taking place. We pray for those who are unable to make it here tonight, those who are on vacation, those I know who are just uh, traveling locally. Lord, bless them and bless us here as we look at this chapter to receive encouragement, strength, and illumination, Lord, into the things that you have said and are saying and continue to say, thank you again for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Revelation chapter 10. And once again, we are pausing. Remember, we paused after the sixth seal, before the last seal was open. And we're doing the same thing here in chapter 10. We're pausing before that last trumpet, which we will see taking place. And so let's start verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said. 
and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel, seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. We start off with a mighty angel. Now, in chapter 5, we saw a mighty angel proclaiming who is worthy to open the scrolls. And here we see this mighty angel has a scroll and it is open. So there seems to be a connection that is there. But there's a little bit more description about the angel here. And it's interesting how angels show up in Scripture. Some of them are very... Uh, incognito. You don't even recognize that they're angelic beings. And the idea of angel is messenger. Remember, three men came to Abraham, and it turns out that they were messengers from the Lord. And so there's times where angels seem just normal human beings. In fact, Hebrew says that when we are entertaining strangers, that we might be entertaining angels without being aware. And so there's a lot that goes into what that means and what it looks like and what an angel could be uh, that we're not going to get into. But sometimes they don't come across as very uh, extravagant or very noticeable. But then there's times like this where the angels are obviously uh, bringing about some... Uh, intricate illustration that we're supposed to grasp hold of something significant, something that mighty is taking place. And as he talks about these things, you know, this angel coming down, he was robed in a cloud. What a cool picture, right? Just robed in a cloud. And it could be kind of an illustration of the presence of God, uh, the spirit of God, something along those lines. Uh, with a rainbow above his head, we saw in chapter 4, a rainbow above the throne. Uh, again, it's kind of bringing us to that place of God's presence. Once again, some people said, well, the rainbow is the bow in the sky, the idea of promise uh, from Noah. And then his face was like the sun. Again, the brilliance, um, the significance could be that of <clears throat> purity. Um, I think the idea is that it is bright and you can't really look upon it, um, that it is so outstanding that it is something you would shield yourself from. I think that is in the idea that is being presented here. And legs were like fiery pillars. Okay, you know, um, what is that? There was the pillar of fire in the wilderness. Uh, fire stands for uh, purification. Uh, it could stand for holiness or, again, the presence of God. And what we're seeing here is, again, a mighty angel. And the whole point, I believe, is to capture our imagination at what that mighty angel is and it's someone who is in the presence of God declaring the things of God 
and we'll get into that a little bit more. But we are supposed to be thinking, oh, wow, right? What would happen if Christianity was just all about evidences, all about information? It would become very lacking, right? There'd be no imagination involved. And imagination is something God created. Einstein said, you know, uh, logic can get you from point A to B, but imagination can take you anywhere. Imagination is something that is used throughout Scripture. It's used with writers in Scripture, even writers uh, like C.S. Lewis, who used imagination for the Chronicles of Narnia that just spread, you know, globally and beautifully. And so imagination is definitely a big part of this book as we've talked about it. And so having this picture of the angel described in this way, it's meant to capture our imagination. It's meant to make us go, whoa, that sounds pretty powerful. And that's the whole point of it here. He embodies the sovereignty of the creator over the creation. Um, The sea and the land in verses 2 and 5 are the two spheres, right? The earth... And the water, just as there's heaven and earth, there are two spheres of whole of creation, or male and female, female, the two spheres of God's creation with mankind. Um, It could hardly be made any clearer that the message he's bringing about is from the creator, since in verse 6, he swears an oath by the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that was in it. Right, So his message is coming from God, and, and it's really clear. Then the whole point, if he's got this message that is from God and is sworn to, sworn to be from God and de- declaring all these things uh, with heaven and earth, swore by him who lives forever, who created the heavens and earth and all that is in the earth and all that is in him, the sea that all is in it, he's swearing by these things. It means that those things are important. The idea of creation is still an important thing. So the notion that God is just going to wipe out all of creation and disregard it and just start all over doesn't seem to be a part of this picture. Because here... The God who made heaven and earth and all that is in it, heaven and the sea that all that is in it, God is taking claim to these things as being his, and it's not likely that he is going to get rid of them and just, you know, kind of snuff them out, as it were. And so I think it's important that we recognize that. He's not just um, getting rid of these things, destroying them, But he is replacing them with something completely different. He's doing something new. When God's mystery is fulfilled, it will be the fulfillment of creation, not the abolition of creation. And so we hear there's seven thunderous voices that come out. It's similar to Psalm 29. Um... Psalm 29, we hear there are seven times where the voice of God thunders. And in Psalm 29, 3, it says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. And so seven times that phrase is used. 
and it thunders in creation, the judgment with all the creation in heaven and earth responding in this worship to God. And we see here seven voices, seven thunders that come out. And again, seven, that perfect number. And as these things come out and these voices come out in this thunderous way, John goes to write them down. But then a voice from heaven says, don't write it down. Why would he write down that he couldn't write it down? Right? It's intentionally being spoken here that he can't write down what just was heard. And if it is a connection to Psalm 29, declaring the wondrous works of God and God's judgment, you know, it's not so much maybe that it's supposed to be a secret as much as it is that not everyone is ready to hear it. You know, Jesus said not to cast pearl before swine, that there are people who are not ready to hear the message that is there. And so maybe this thundering of the wonders of God isn't something that everyone can grasp and understand. And so it isn't something that you can write. It has to be something that is spoken. Remember, we saw in chapter one that we are supposed to read aloud the words in this book. It wasn't just read them. There is the emphasis on reading aloud. And maybe this is something that can only be understood when we actually hear it in the conversation. Because a stage is being set here in this chapter for what's going to come in chapter 11, which is kind of a, a culmination of things. And the, really, the stage is about that of witnessing. It's about being a witness. It's about living a testimony. And John is being prepared to be an important part of declaring what is going to take place. And so sometimes things can only be understood when someone is there declaring it and speaking it and making it a reality. There was an old umpire in uh, the Major League Baseball. His name was Bill Clem. And Bill Clem was one of those old school kind of umpires where a lot of people didn't like him, whether it was pitchers or managers, just because of how he did things. And it was kind of like what I say goes. And there was one time where a pitch was thrown and he took an exceptionally long time to call it. And as he was sitting there, they said, well, is it a ball or is it a strike? And he said, it ain't nothing till I call it. And his whole point is, I'm the one who gets to decide what it is. And that's an important thing to understand that takes place in the sharing of God's revelation is it's not anything until it is spoken and shared and the people of God get to carry it to become something. Let's read the rest of the chapter. Verse 8, he says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. 
Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. John is now being put on the spot. There are new things that are going to happen that are going to be revealed as part of God's purpose. And John's word is what brings them about. You're the one who now has to go and proclaim these things. And it's as if if you don't proclaim these things, these things aren't going to take place. John is a part of the proclamation, part of the prophecy that is taking place. You must prophesy again about many peoples. Well, God, aren't you going to prophesy? And God is telling him, no, you have eaten the scroll. It is now a part of you, and you are going to speak it out. And this is really important because there's a significance of him speaking these things. The lamb has removed the seals so that the scroll can be read. And now the scroll to be read, John is to do what to it? He's supposed to eat it. And this, it seems, is the reason why he's invited into this heavenly realm is to participate in what it is God is doing. And again, that's how prophecy works. God's words are to become John's words so that they become words to humanity. So that they become words that all humanity can then hear and embrace. That's part of what happened in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, and chapter 20, uh, verse 22 and verse 27. God's people will share his rule over the world. How will they do that? They will proclaim these things. They will have heard and they will do and share the things that God has put within them that become then the way things are ruled. And, and so there's an important participation that is easy to overlook with this fiery-looking angel standing there and these voices of thunder that are taking place. And John just eats this little scroll, but I think it's interesting that he says, give me the scroll, and the angel says, take it. And God tells him, take it and eat it, right? He's supposed to do these things himself. God has made it so that it is now open, it's now available, but you need to take it, you need to eat it, so that it becomes a part of you. And that's where the word is given to the prophet to eat, digest, to speak. Like every gift of God, the scroll is sweet to the taste but then what it produces can be something that is unpleasant, right? It, its message is bitter. Why? Because it includes judgment for all those who are refusing, who are continuing in, as he's talked already in the book, to follow the way of Baal and the 
the whole things that are taking place with idolatry. If they're going to continue living this, the word of God is true and it's sweet. But, oh, some of the consequences what people don't understand. It's bitter. And I believe that that's what he's talking about. Because there's going to be a lot more warnings to follow. Um, even more than what took place with Ezekiel chapter 2. And Ezekiel went through a similar thing where he was told to eat. And it was sweet and then it became bitter. And what was he doing? He was proclaiming the judgment of God to Israel. And here John is proclaiming the judgment of God to the world. Right? And it's a very vivid metaphor metaphor for the way that the prophet... um, John's time as well as today, can only speak God's word when it's actually a part of our life, when it's ingested and it becomes a part of us, right? When it starts to be our nourishment and produce that within us. It might be bitter and it could be sweet. It could be both. This is part of what it means to say that God's desire to act in the world through people is important. The people are the ones who are now going to also bear the consequences of these words that they speak about Christ. And again, through the persecution and the martyrdom that we're going to see taking place again. We've seen it already, and it's going to take place even again. Speaking these words. Um, Prophecy is speaking words which bring God's understanding into the world. Um, It's a special aspect of really a human vocation concerning Christ. Here, John shoulders that responsibility. You bear the burden of carrying God's word, living it, and speaking it to others. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Excuse me. What's going to follow, especially in chapter 12, is going to be some terrible judgments and yet tremendous victories, Um, tremendous mercy, where God's mystery uh, is to be completed. And, and, And it's going to take place. John is now initiating it. He's now setting this into motion. And the gift of this little scroll and the vocation that John has as a prophet to turn its words into prophecy, which will bring God's purpose into the world, all take place as we're waiting for this last trumpet blast. This is all happening in the pause to get ready. This is setting up for the spike. This is the precursor to what is going to be revealed, right? The angel says it is coming soon, and when it comes, it will be complete. God's mystery in verse 7. There will be no more time in verse 6. It's not, I think, in the sense that time will be no more. It's leaving everything in the timeless eternity. I think it's talking about time has run out for those who are presuming presuming God to continue to just be patient and not bring about justice. That it's going to come to an end. This time, the things will reach their goal. And it reminds us that, again, the sequence of events, and whether it be 
the the bowls, whether it be the seals, whether it be the trumpets, even the seven letters, that all these things aren't sequential. They're not just one after another, but they are layered. This is a, a picture of God's working and how he works, and it's multifaceted in, in so many ways. Um, and that's what we're seeing take place in these things. Um, God is going to bring these things to a fruition, and it is going to be the culmination, the letters, the seals, the bowls. But it's one key dimension of kind of the same sequence. Because really, it seems like this book could end after chapter 11. And then chapter 12, it's like he starts over again, but looks in a different perspective that we'll see as we go on. Um, after chapter 11, we have another video that we'll show uh, from chapter 12 to the end. And it's just interesting because John is painting so many pictures so vividly about what it looks like to live in a world where evil people rule, but God reigns. And how does that work? And what is our role? And here specifically, what is John's role? It is to bring about the change for God's reign by the things he says and because he's digested this scroll by the way he lives. Right? It's now a part of his life. In all these things. And so we're bracing ourselves once more for that seventh trumpet. But before it sounds, the churches that John's writing to need to know where they stand in this scenario. Where do we stand in this world ruled by evil, but a God who reigns? Are we spectators? Are we just waiting for God to do something and we're at the mercy of all these other things? Or are we to have a very specific role in how things take place? And that's what we're leading into, into chapter 11. And it's a big deal because he is, again, setting the stage by being told now that he is the one who is supposed to prophesy to the many nations, languages, and kings, he is to proclaim, just like Ezekiel had to, the other prophets before him, now he and those who belong to Christ have a very powerful role to play in how things are going to move forward. So that's chapter 10. Told you it'd be a short one. But I figured better to be a short one than way too long of two. So any questions? How many days did it take God to create? Seven, right? It, it, it is completion. It is God saying it, it's completed. Um, the idea of perfection is with completion. And so it's like this is the right Amounts. This is everything that is needed to complete what God is trying to do. Yeah, that's that's the significance significance of seven. And again, 
It's supposed to be something that provokes the mind. It definitely would have, especially to the Hebrew mind, who these numbers would mean a lot to. You know, the number of completion, God created the worlds in the seventh day he rested, right? Uh, six days, seventh day he rested. To them, it would be very significant. Seven was a very significant thing. And so saying this seven, he's saying that this is complete. This is exactly what God wanted. Any other thoughts? Mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants. Yeah, I believe it is, will be seen through his people. The mystery of God, um, really Christ in you, the hope of glory. I believe that that's along the idea of the mystery of God. Um, Him showing a mystery has always been that of God revealing himself in Christ to his people and then in the people. This is how God's mysteries come up. You can look up mysteries. I think in Romans you'll have a lot of ideas of what that is, but it definitely is the gospel and the fulfillment that shows up in humanity. There comes a time. And again, if we don't think of this chronologically, but we think of this more layered, um, that shows up throughout history again and again and again. It shows up throughout our lives in many ways where, you know, we're finally having to deal with consequences. Um, Those things show up in our lives. You know, judgment, we reap what we sow. And so that is something that is cosmic, you know. Um, It's not karma. It's cosmic, you know, from God. I mean, there's a difference between karma and the cosmic justice that God has put in play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, it's, I mean, again, let's try and put ourselves in the picture where John is at and play it out in a scenario that we could, uh, a time where Rome is um, wholly given to idolatry and just the decadent worship that they were in, um, those who are following Christ are going through intense persecution. Uh, and that situation, you know, here are these people declaring good news that God is not far away and he's not an idol and he's loving and caring and wants to engage in relational way to these people which incredible, sweet, good news, um, but the consequences is going to be detrimental to the people who speak it with persecution and detrimental to the people who refuse to come and be a part of what God is offering. You know, if God offers life and you reject it, your only choice is death, you know. And so that really seems to be, you know, the souring it's both the persecution and uh, the consequences of what will happen to the rejection. Are there, are you asking me, are there? Um, I'm sure there are. I mean, trying to rec- remember when I read in the introduction about this that, um, I mean, there was a very specific group of churches, the seven, re- in that region of Turkey, 
that were addressed that I think um, were the recipients of, you know, these letters, but then, of course, it spread. Um, not that I know of, um, not that I've come across in my studying of what they thought of it. Um, again, I know that some people think it was John the Beloved and others think it was just a different John. Um, because of um, some tradition that says that John went to Patmos, John the Beloved, it's thought that that was him. But then uh, it's a tradition. It's not really a verifiable thing. And then there's some who are saying that the way this is written is not as poetic as the gospel or, you know, the epistles of John. Um, it's just a whole different style of writing. And, and I can see that a little bit, even though it's not original. You can see it's a lot different than the gospel writing. Um, but I don't know Greek well enough to say, yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, I don't speak Greek at all. So um, I, I don't know much about where other people thought came where they received it and how they thought about it. I know it was received and spread, so it was accepted. And I think, as we have been talking about, a lot of the things that are illustrative to us were commonplace to them. You know, if years from now someone says something about, oh, and the the struggles of immigration and the country um, that you know, are going to take place. In 50 years, it probably wouldn't mean the same thing as it did to us right now as because it's current media, right? Um, and, and so some of those things I think were taking place, especially dealing with those churches and those regions and some of the things mentioning, I think they would say, oh, I know who he's talking about, right. you know? And so I think and a lot of it is alluded to Rome and we saw some of that in the churches, how these things were very part of their uh, economic structure and stuff like that. But that's all I know. Any other thoughts, questions? Well, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again for speaking and not only speaking to us, Lord, but revealing to us and inviting us to participate, to digest, Lord, your words and allow them to be a part of our life. And Lord, we know that they are good. We know they are sweet, but we also know that there is consequences in the world that we live in, that it is a moral universe that we are a part of and that there is going to be judgment for those who do not live in accordance with your character and who you are. And so, Father, I pray that we would not hesitate to declare the words, that they would be so much a part of our life, that they would just emanate from us, and I pray, Lord, that we would be wise in how we live and how we communicate, how we love, 
and that you would allow us to participate in what it is you are doing, Lord. Not only globally and historically, Lord, um, but throughout all creation. I thank you again for this time we had. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.